Love Talk Radio. Manuscript in 1841 and on through Dion Fortune's Moon Magic, Somerset Mom's The Magician, and that was a novel and a film. Um, Chambers, The King in Yellow, Love, and that influenced Lovecraft, and Lovecraft's Dream Cycle. Abraham Merritt's Lost Worlds, they influenced Shaver. Jack Williamson's Darker Than You Think, and that happened to be Jack Parsons' favorite. Clark Ashton Smith, who I said was the dream maker extraordinary, and uh, a little bit about his imitator, Jack Vance, where we get the Dungeons and Dragons game from. And then some of the more uh, recent uh, fiction, Dallas by Philip K. Dick. Uh, and then we'll dip into magical films. Uh, we'll start with um, Cocteau's Orpheus back in 1949, and very shortly followed by Orson Welles' Black Magic, which was about Count Coliostro, and Marion Cooper's version of She, and much later, um, Simon King of the Witches in 1971, uh, and then we'll, What Dreams May Come, that's a Swedenborgian kind of a thing. Uh, then we'll talk about a little bit about the recent film Crowley, uh, which we've already mentioned on an earlier show, and uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain. So this will be, a, as we said, a smorgasbord of mind-benders. Tune in and feast on it. Okay, uh, the, um, the origin of this particular program goes back to 1999 and the seventh ray, the blue ray, and in that issue, I published a, uh, in the book review section, I, I published a list of magical fiction, a little description of each. Uh, I left out some important ones, unfortunately, but I wish I were to correct tonight. Uh, and uh, the, uh, what I said was is, uh, that, uh, that uh, because we're an occasional journal, there was no necessity to be current or timely in book reviews, we can settle back and take a long view of any book, category of books, that bear on our magical art, recommending those long out of print. For nearly all can be obtained through a search service, especially on the Internet. 
uh, or an interlibrary loan. Actually, you know, they're, they're reprinting so many of these old classics now that you won't have any trouble finding anything that I mention here. Um, it's just it's just wonderful, and you can get them all through Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And if you have trouble, in, in, if they don't, if they can't find them for you, a Libris can certainly find them for you. And uh, now, um, keep in mind that uh, that high magic is is the active principle of romantic philosophy. Now, we'll explore the vast ocean of imaginative literature, which includes fantasy, horror, science fiction. And we'll select a list of tales that offer more than just entertainment for the serious student of magic. Now, these novels and stories are not so much instructive as they are evocative. They subtly but nonetheless powerfully develop a magical state of mind. This includes the films, too. And I said, here are a few more than a maker's dozen of my personal favorites, and I'm sure there are deserving works that I have not included, and I, uh, oh, I, I know what they are, I'll mention them. But I am equally certain that the titles in this list deserve a place on the magician's bookshelf. Now, before we get into this, I just that's, that well, that's what we said in, in the in the seventh ray. But before we get into this, let me point something out. Uh, you're going to be probably surprised that I'm not going to mention uh, a few of your favorites. And the reason why, probably why I'm not mentioning them, isn't that I haven't come across them. It's it's because magic. In fiction and and in films is most often not presented the way it really is. It is it's most often presented as as some uh, totally uh, uh, preposterous kind of a uh, an art form that conjures things out of thin air that bite people and 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 shower you with gold and all this sort of thing that that. That magic really doesn't do it. Well, it does, but it doesn't do it in the way that that uh, that it that it does in in most fantasy fiction, a lot of fantasy fiction, and of course in films. Uh, one of the uh, so so these particular stories that I've selected uh, are ones that present and evoke magic the way it really is. And yet they are very, very exciting and beautiful, and I think you'll like them. And uh, these these stories, by the way, have influenced magicians, other magicians, and other magicians have also recommended them. The first one we start off with in this list, Lilith by George MacDonald, was one that Crowley recommended in the Equinox. Now Lilith, this was George MacDonald was one of the one of the inkling crowd that Tolkien and Lewis and that bunch. Uh, and he wrote Lilith uh, back in the 1800s, late 1800s. Lilith is an incredible book. It's 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 psychedelic. It it it's it's amazing. You 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 get you read this and and and, and it's it's like taking it's like it's like somehow or other where you you wonder where he got the psilocybin. Anyway, um, it's it's an interplane symbolic adventure beyond death. Psychedelic, nightmarish, eerie, and beautiful. It's a classic. That's Lilith by George MacDonald. My uh, my friend and mentor, Lynn Carter, uh, edited a, 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 a one version of it in paperback. You probably can get that pretty easily. There are um, there are some trade paperbacks 
also available. I mean, you know, sort of in a classic series, you won't have any trouble finding it. Now, the next one we'll talk about after that is The Magician by W. Somerset Maugham, who uh, is, of course, one of the greatest novelists in the in the English language. And uh, this was uh, a very unusual thing for Maugham to write a book like this. It's very romantic. It's very... Uh, uh, very much of a uh, uh, of a melodrama, very much of a melodrama, which was unusual for Mom. You know, he wrote things like The Razor's Edge and, you know, and uh, that sort of thing. So uh, this is a fictional demonization of Aleister Crowley with intimations of Frankenstein and Svengali, and it contains dark alchemical secrets. And, oh boy, it does. Now, what Mom did as any good novelist will do when he wrote this. After, you know, he knew Crowley, and, and, and he uh, he and Crowley were, I wouldn't call exactly friends, but they, they were acquaintances, they knew each other. and they, uh, So Mom decided to do this, and he, he put himself into the British Museum, and he stayed in the British Museum, and, and according to his own description, he, he immersed himself in these old manuscripts in the British Museum. He dug up some stuff on alchemy that is absolutely fascinating. A little bit scary, too. So The Magician is one you really, really want to dig up and, and, and read. That's available in a new in a new knockoff paperback version. And uh, also, this was... Uh, this was uh, made into a film, a very beautiful, beautiful silent film, uh, 1926, I think, by uh, Rex Ingram, called The Magician. And the film is absolutely beautiful, and very. And you realize where where Whaley got the idea for his Frankenstein uh, sets and, and costumes and even his laboratory equipment. <laughs> this is really it. You need to see this film. Uh, I had an old, lousy old VHS print of it, and, and I loaned it to some of the guys, uh, the OTO guys up in San, San Francisco, and I had to fight them to get it back. But now there is, now uh, one of the one of the cable channels, uh, I think it's TCM, or, or they ran a beautiful, beautiful print. I'm trying to... However, I don't. I'm not sure that it's, that that print is available on DVD yet, but it will be. That's one you need to see. Now, Moon Magic by Dion Fortune, Violet Firth, and we can't forget this. This is um, Moon Magic. I think is her best book. She had several magical novels, The Sea Priestess and and uh, The Goatfoot God, various magical novels that she wrote. She was a, a, a late golden daughter, as you probably know. That's Violet Firth. And her her uh, her, her boyfriend uh, was uh, a psychologist uh, who ran a private sanitarium who became the character Dr. Tavener for her Dr. Tavener stories, which you should also look up. And uh, Moon Magic is is her uh, kind of her story about herself as as a priestess, and and she uh, she leases an old ruined abbey and creates a temple, and and just 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 a beautiful beautiful. At this at this stage, Dion Fortune was a pagan. Later on, she became she went back to Christianity in her later life, but she was a full blown pagan pagan priestess when she wrote this one. 
this moon magic is when you, you this is an insider's story. Yeah, of course, as I said, The Secrets of Dr. Taverner is a collection of magical tales dealing with several aspects of practical occultism. This is back in the 20s, you know, and this is back back uh, very, very golden dawnish, but it also has a psychological uh, bent to it because uh, uh, Dr. Taverner himself, the, the real Dr. Taverner, was a psychotherapist and he um, and a doctor, and so there is this there is this um, this psychological approach to, to magic, which makes it takes it above above and beyond the Hollywood level. Now, next, um, I have the Great God Pan, which is a novella, a short novel by Arthur Macon. Now, this is a haunting story that rends the veil separating inner and outer worlds. It was a major influence on Howard Phillips Lovecraft. It's a classic. And so the Great God Pan is one of these one of these stories that influenced influenced our our um, our beloved H.P. Lovecraft, and that brings us to H.P. Lovecraft. Now, oh, everybody likes to read the horror stories, the Cthulhu mythos, and all that. But really, when you get down to it, Lovecraft, Lovecraft's fantasies, his influence on Lord Dunsany, and frankly, I think. Uh, you know, I have all of Dunsany's material, and it's good and all of that. But Lovecraft was a better stylist. He was a much better stylist than Dunsany. And the dream cycle, the dreams, the, the dream cycle stories of Lovecraft are are incredibly magical. And uh, this through the gates of the silver key, uh, which was written in collaboration with with E. Hoffman Price, who was something of an occultist. This contains a very valuable exposition of interdimensional theory, which I think you'll find interesting. It's called Through the Gates of the Silver Key. Now, I'd also like to mention one other thing by Lovecraft, which which is much which is his venture into traditional traditional old black magic and alchemy, and that's the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Now that also has been made into a film a couple times. The best film version of this is the Haunted Palace with Vincent Price and uh, Vincent Price and Lon Chaney uh, did this uh, did this one and they just beautiful and it's Roger Corman by the way and it's very 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 flavorful and you can get that on DVD and now let's move on to the Ship of Ishtar by Abraham Merritt now Merritt Abraham Merritt is due for a revival. He's I expect to see I expect to see in the in pretty shortly on, I expect to see in the science fiction book club, I expect to see a, the start of an Abraham Merritt revival. Uh it's it's building up. Abraham Merritt was one of the greatest fantasy writers who ever lived. This man was a was a really good professional journalist. And he was, for a while, he was the editor, well, for several years, he was the editor of the American Weekly, which was one of the big, big uh, nationwide uh, Sunday supplement magazines. It was in, uh, I would say, more than half the papers in the United States. And Abraham Merritt was the editor. Now, he, Abraham Merritt wrote his fantasies not 
he didn't write them for the pot like some of these pulp magazine writers that were bang, banging away on their typewriters, you know, to feed themselves. Merritt did this because he enjoyed it. And his stories, Abraham Merritt's Lost World stories, are just, ah, they're scintillating, they're beautiful. His vocabulary was, was marvelous, and, it, and his, his, he painted pictures with words of scintillating light and shimmering, shining uh, visions that just... It, 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 reading a Merritt story is, is like a dream. Once you actually enter, get through, with the, get through with the Indiana Jones part of it and actually enter the lost world, you can't remember if somebody asked you to tell to tell them the story after after you've read it. Two weeks after you've read it, you can say, "Well, well, we went to Mongolia and and then we had this expedition and we yeah we got that and and we went into this through this thing and God, I don't remember what happened after that, but then we came back <laughs> because it's like Chinese food after. <laughs> <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's dreamlike. It's so dreamlike that that you have difficulty remembering it, uh, and yet it's it, yeah, while you're reading it, you're just in this in a trance. So Abraham Merritt, the ship of Ishtar, by the way, is the most magical of his stories because this is a ship, a little model, beautifully carved ancient model ship that's black on the stern side and white on the bow. And the priestess of Ishtar is on the in the forecastle, and the priest of Nergal is in the stern castle, and the two of them are cursed because of a sex magic operation they did four thousand years ago. They're cursed to sail on this astral sea in this model ship, and have this symbolic magical battle for the rest of eternity. And of course, the young archaeologist becomes um, intoxicated with the model and, and finds that he falls into it and, and joins them. And this, this you can imagine just uh, how, how, how wonderful this thing is. So um, after that, uh, we want to mention Dwellers in the Mirage by Abraham Merritt. This is a modern man possessed by his ancestral incarnation. This one takes place in Mongolia, and it deals with uh, the deepest mysteries of of, uh, of Mongolia, which we're just now beginning to really unravel. Um, and and I, I won't spoil it for you by telling you that much about it. But it's one of these one of these stories that you you really you you'll know as you read it. There's some, some deep dark some deep dark ancient secrets in it. Now. Moving right along to um, Clark Ashton Smith. Now, uh, uh, Lauren just uh, picked up on the uh, uh, Clark Ashton Smith sculpture, and we were looking at it on the on the web. And uh, the uh, uh, whose website is that? Uh, on the Clark Ashton Smith. Well, anyway, he was a sculptor, a poet, and he was one of the most one of the most marvelous, limpid erudite fantasy stylists that the world has ever produced. This man wrote prose, magical prose that was that was incredible. Uh, and he created these fantasy worlds uh, somewhat theosophic, 
uh, and uh, you know, ancient, very, very ancient worlds. He and Lovecraft were, were close friends and close correspondents. Uh, neither one of them imitated the other. They they were both masters in their own right. Uh, but Clark Ashton Smith, his his uh, his ancient his ancient worlds and the magic that he's the magical tales that he spins. These are are just incredibly beautiful, and so I in Sothic, uh the uh, out of space and time, um, and genus loci, uh, lost worlds. I'm mentioning a few titles here. So Clark Ashton Smith is one that you really really need to need to need, need to have. You at least need to have one really good Clark Ashton Smith book to to uh, to feast on. And after that, uh, the complete Sean Silent stories by Algernon Blackwood. Blackwood was one of the Golden Dawn people, and he uh, these are the strange cases of a consulting psychic delivered by a master storyteller, and it contains the horror classic ancient sorceries of the cat people. That's where cat people comes from. Clark, uh, yeah, Algernon Blackwood is is uh, a very subtle and and, and a very mature. Adult kind of style, and you'll you'll uh, you'll enjoy him. Now we mentioned the King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. <laughs> the King in Yellow. If you're a Lovecraft fan, you will have probably run across various articles that people write about Lovecraft and what influenced him. Lovecraft was influenced by a number of earlier writers. Arthur Mencken, of course, was one. Edgar Allan Poe, of course, was one. Uh, and uh, but the King in Yellow by Robert Chambers, uh, who was primarily a regular mainstream novelist, Chambers didn't write too much fantasy. Uh, have I got a call? Uh, Chambers didn't write too much fantasy, but when he did, uh, the few that he did certainly were memorable. Now, the um, the King in Yellow is a collection of stories about the effect of a mysterious book that drives its readers insane. Now, you can imagine why this was an influence on Lovecraft, because The King in Yellow is probably where Lovecraft got the idea for the Necronomicon. Uh, the King in Yellow, uh, the, the, the book that Chambers is, is uh, referring to, was actually a play, and it was published in a little private edition, and people who would read this book, everybody that got it and everybody that read it either went insane, committed suicide, committed horrible murders, or, or, or ended up in some awful way, and to the point where where the book became very, very difficult to obtain, but of course, then, obviously, more and more people were trying to find it. Uh, and the thing that is so really, um, uh, so really scary about about the the first story in the King of Yellow, they repair our reputations. Uh, the thing that's so scary about this is is that Chambers was able in this story, as you follow the protagonist through the story from his point of view, he very subtly and slowly goes crazy. And you don't realize this fully until the later part of the story, but the way he handles it you're you're right in there, and 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 you're, you're and the effect is actually is actually almost 
almost like reading the King of Yellow itself. So this is one that you you you, you might want to look up. Uh, Chambers' work's been republished too. Uh, now we'll move on. Yeah, and actually we're moving backward in time a little bit here. The Saragossa Manuscript, or the manuscript found in Saragossa, which is the proper title of it, by Jan Patochki. Now, this is a surrealistic, Decameron-style excursion through a haunted region of Spain, and it's now recognized, now, as a classic of literature. Now, the uh, Saragossa Manuscript was first published in 1841. It was written back earlier. Jan Patochki was one of these... Uh, one of these protean geniuses, an adventurer. He was a Freemason. He was a Rosicrucian. He was a Kabbalistic student. He was, a, and he also he went to Mongolia at one point, and uh, that and he had had a very active sex life, and and he kind of he kind of uh, enjoyed uh, a series of menage a trois, and he. He finally, and this probably has something to do with his trip to Mongolia, finally, after writing this, this marvelous occult, uh, mysterious occult Saragossa manuscript, uh, he blew his brains out with a church-blessed silver bullet. So you wonder what, uh, what he found out in Mongolia, or what bit him in Mongolia. Anyway, uh, the Saragossa manuscript is, is just indescribably good. It's a Decameron style, uh, stories within stories within stories within stories, and it's about this secret underground magical Muslim uh, cavern empire in southern Spain where the where the uh, the Muslims have been driven underground and and they have a treasure and 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 uh, the and the capitalist has a castle and and oh and it, it's it's yeah, they have a couple of vampires who everybody goes to everybody that, that that somehow or other has a vision ends up waking up under the two corpses of the two vampire brothers. It's this is a this is a marvelous thing, and it has mirror magic in it. Uh, I think I, I cut my teeth on this Saragossa manuscript. I think it's one of the things that influenced me on my on my mirror magic because you, there's a lot of use of mirrors in the sorry, magical mirrors in the Saragossa manuscript. I strongly recommend that. By the way, we are running in the coming seventh ray. We're going to be running a couple of of uh, uh, a pastiche of two of the Kabbalistic stories from the Saragossa manuscript. Now, after that, um, I mentioned. I'm going to skip down this list because I got it out of. I, I want to kind of keep it in some kind of time sequence here. My first 2,000 years: the autobiography of the wandering Jew, by George S. Myrick and Paul Eldridge. Now, this this may be a little difficult to find these days. It's a fascinating historical novel about immortals influencing history. This is is. Calcrates and and uh, and Salome, the two the two immortals, and and how they go all through history, and the story proceeds on several levels. It's a controversial classic. Uh, I I think that that the, you 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 really enjoy this one. But one of the things that's very illuminating and interesting about this is that this was written by George Sylvester Byron. And those of you who are deep into the history of Crowley and all of his doings, 
you won't realize that George Sylvester Weirich was the same German who hired Crowley during World War One in New York to write propaganda for the Germans. And Crowley, in his confessions, said that that he it was easy to put this this ridiculous propaganda that he was writing uh, to get George to accept it because George was an umpapa's stupid German and and he didn't realize that Crowley was actually uh, doing a disservice to the Germans with this stuff that he was writing. Well, now, when you read the first 2,000 years, the autobiography of the wandering Jew, you're going to realize that George Sylvester Weirich was no stupid umpapa German. And so there, that casts some serious doubt on on Crow and Crowley's statement there about his what he was doing in World War One. Um, now, uh, however, regardless of that, my first two thousand years is one is one that I think you you really like. Now, uh, the next one we want to talk about is "Darker Than You Think" by Jack Williams. Now, this is a science fiction horror story about genetic throwbacks who become astral werewolves. Come from Mongolia, by the way. Remarkably close to actual shamanic techniques. This was the favorite novel of rocket scientist and magician Jack Parsons. Let me say a few things about this. Uh, this is probably one of the one of the most effective and one of the most genuinely frightening werewolf novels you will ever read. And the reason is because these werewolves are very possibly real. Uh, there is a they're, I, I'm beginning to look more and more like the werewolf tradition really starts in Mongolia, and it starts back in Paleolithic times. And according to, and this story came out, by the way, in 1941, so so uh, he was really ahead of his time as far as his anthropology is concerned. But uh, the basic premise of the story is that, yes, they are, it is a bloodline, yes, they are a different species, homo lycanthropus, but they don't do physical transformations. They go after you on the astral, and they cause you to have accidents and heart attacks and things like this, and they go and they assume animal form on the astral, and then they go after their victims. Now, this is very shamanic, very Mongolian, and it also is was translated into Buddhism in the form of Throng Jug Yoga. So we're looking here at something that's just like, uh, yeah, this this is, you might say, the real thing. And uh, the story is gripping and very suspenseful. And it there it was had an influence on a film some of you may have seen called Angel Heart. Angel Heart, although didn't deal with werewolves, Angel Heart uses the same plot uh, from as darker than you think. I don't want to spoil the story for you by by giving you the a spoiler on it, but uh, but it's it's one that, as I said, Jack Parsons really really, yeah, Jack Williamson uh, was badgered by 
nascent witches in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Science Fiction uh, Club, uh, who would come up to him when he would be, he'd come to the club and they'd say, hey, you know secrets, don't you? You know, where did you get the lore for this thing? Where did you find out? And Williams had just brushed him off and said, oh, come on, it's just a story. It's just a story. Forget it. But uh, this uh, this is one that, that, that uh, as I say, this is one that if you're into this sort of thing, from an occult point of view, you really ought to read this one. Now, uh, you may mention What Dreams May Come by Richard Matheson. Of course, he also wrote uh, I Am Legend. Now, this was recently made into a major motion picture with uh, Robin Williams. Uh, it's a moving and very personal modern version of Dante's Divine Comedy. Now, it's also, and I think we should mention this about What Dreams May Come, it's also very Swedenborgian, and and I think that that you know if you want to if you want to really um, you know kind of kind of get 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 a uh, <laughs> how shall I put it if you want to get a, a quick and easy dose of Swedenborg Swedenborg otherwise is oh God he's boring uh, you know I said one time that that you could you could reduce the size of Swedenborg's books by um, well, you can reduce them by by two thirds if you took out every every word good, every word good that he has in in his books. If you took all the goods out, you would you would reduce the books down to about a little less than half of what their size would be. Uh, and Blake, of course, was a great Swedenborgian, and Blake finally rebelled against him. But what dreams may come is is uh, very much worthwhile to give you a good. A good dose of Swedenborg, painless dose of Swedenborg. Now, uh, let me talk about a couple more more recent ones. Uh, and one, but one that I, before we get on to the recent ones, the one that I forgot to put in this list back in 1999, and I've been wondering ever since why I forgot it. I don't know what why that would ever possess me to forget it because it's one of the most magical novels ever written. And and it was written back in the 20s. And when it came out, it was supposed to be shocking, and they were banning it in Boston and everything else. And that's Jurgen by James Branch Cavill. And this it, it, this is absolutely outstanding. It's symbolic. It's it's beautiful. It even has, and you fellow might will love this, it's got a whole chapter on the Gnostic Mass, in, in, in this in this novel, this fantasy novel, and and uh, Jurgen goes through this 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 thing with the priestess, and it, Crowley and and Campbell, uh, Crowley just loved it. He he recommended it highly because he knew that he knew that Campbell had, had used his Gnostic mass in uh, in the book. So Jurgen. And Jurgen is one of these things. It's difficult to describe. It's very symbolic. Uh, Cabell has a marvelous sense of humor. He takes Jurgen. Hell's a democracy, and heaven is a is a uh, is exactly the way your grand your your fundamentalist grandmother thought it was. And oh, this is just this is this is well, it's more fun than what dreams may come. Let me put it that way. But it is very, 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 very worth reading. And I think Jurgen is just one of these one of these treasures, and you just got to read Jurgen. Uh, and I don't know why I could kick myself for not putting it in back uh, in '99. I should have. Um, you know what? 
happened there. But uh, now, moving into more recent, more recent fiction. Uh, there's one more I forgot too, and I didn't put it in there. Zanoni by Bulwer Lytton. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I got, I, I got, a, I, I, I'm not wild about Zanoni, but it is a very, uh, it's just another one of these things that was back in eighteen, in the 1880s, and it's very occult and and Rosicrucian, and has the concept of the dweller on the threshold and and uh it's very much of a of an occult um uh morality play but it Bulwer Lytton uh, wrote uh, a couple of other uh, occult novels he was a politician by the way and a and a highly respected uh british uh british politician and civil servant uh one of them that he did thrill Power of the coming race. And this thing, this was a shaver like, uh, probably influenced shaver. Uh, it, it was a, about a, uh, an underground race of super beings that were going to come up and take over the earth when they finally uh, got their stuff together to do it. And they had this secret power, this power source called Vril, which did just about everything. And the Germans liked this so much the the pre-Nazis and maybe a few of the post-Nazis they liked this so much they made a cult out of it <laughs> the brittle society so that's uh, that was real Zanoni is another one and um, so Bulwer Lytton of course uh, you all have heard I'm sure of the annual Bulwer Lytton worst first sentence for a for a First, for, for a novel, they have an annual contest. It's kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek literary contest to write the worst first sentence of a novel, and you get the one that writes the worst first sentence gets a prize. Uh, and a few years ago, I, some lady got a prize for one that went something like Sister Agatha stared up from flat on her back on the mat as the 300-pound nude lesbian sumo wrestler descended on her, and she was forced to admit that the Pope had betrayed her. And that she won the worst first sentence contest with, with that one. <laughs> anyway, that, that was the Bulwer Lytton contest. But Bulwer Lytton, yeah, thrills, actually thrills pretty pretty easy reading. I... I, I Took it up to Mount Shasta with me, and I was reading it while I was up there. Good place to read it. Uh, now, uh, let's talk about a, a new one, uh, one more recent one, Vallis by Philip K. Dick. Okay. Now, Dick Dick was just as crazy as, as Richard Shaver. Uh, crazy, perhaps, in a different way. No, actually, maybe in the same way. I don't know, but... But Vallis, Vallis is a, a very, very uncomfortable book because what Dick does in Vallis is he takes you through, uh, he takes you through his own madness and his own madness and his religious experience in Vallis. But then, when he starts gets through this and he starts having his vision. 
the the awesome import of this and what makes Vallis uh, almost for those of you who are really really uh, into modern modern alchemy and modern atomic you know quantum physics and all this if you're really up on this sort of thing this Vallis is incredible because what what he and what horse was it. Uh, horse feather fat? No, I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> uh, Dick, Dick's translation of his name in from Greek uh, in uh, horse lover fat. That's right. Horse lover fat. Here's the character. Fully realizes in the end of this book that God is information. That's what God is. God is information. God is binary. God is did I did it did did I God <laughs> this is God God's information and and this Dick came out with this several years before quantum physics got around to actually postulating the same thing and and this this makes Vallis an incredibly prophetic and quite an experience. Uh, you know, it really is. It, Vallis is one that, that I think that, that that is really a mind-expanding, uh, mind-expanding uh, literary experience. I think you really, uh, you really get a, a kick out of it. Now, um, let's talk about some films. We uh, we already mentioned um, the silent film Rex Ingram's 1926, The Magician. If you can find it, especially if you find the new. This new print that's absolutely beautiful. Now, um, Orpheus by Jean Cocteau. Orpheus was done with one cheap old movie camera in, in post-war France, 1947-1948. They did this, shot this thing black and white. Uh, at least it was sound uh, with one old movie camera, and did their special effects all by themselves and and and. Uh, and but this film, this film is absolutely incredible. It's Orpheus in modern dress. It's the Orpheus legend in modern dress. But the thing that is so great about it, and I saw this back when I was a kid in 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 uh, sophomore in college, and this thing blew me away. This because. What it shows you and what you realize as you watch this film is that this world that we live in is magical. You don't have to go to a fantasy world. Cocteau makes makes the world around you magical and the people around you magical. And the people, they're not really people, they're 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 Greek gods. They but they're but they're just ordinary they they act like and look like ordinary people. And the death, Lady Death. Rides around and 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 and, and in, a, in a Rolls Royce with a radio, and the radio broadcasts from the underworld, and it broadcasts cryptic messages from the underworld. And Orpheus, the poet, is fascinated by what comes across the radio in Death's Rolls Royce, and and he he's, he he hears things like to the poet, to the bird. Who speaks with his fingers, and and uh, things like this, these these strange messages 
uh, coming across, and 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 then when they pass through the mirrors, and here again we're using mirrors again, they pass through the mirrors. Uh, this special effect, yeah, sure, they just put, they turn the camera sideways, and then they and they put their hands into into a into a trough of mercury in the uh, in the mirror, and made it look like they were pushing their hands through the mirror, with gloves on, of course, and and but it was beautifully done. And then they'd take the camera and put it up on a ladder and then shoot them down from top going through the mirror and into the other world. And, and this, this film, is, it's, it's very inexpensive, and, it's, and yet it has that magical flavor to it that, that just lets you, lets you, gives you the idea that the world itself is magical. And so Orpheus is a real classic. They still show it today. They still show it on the classic channels on TV, and, it, and it's, it's a wonderful film. You can get it on DVD, of course. Now, following that, Black Magic, Orson Welles, the great Orson Welles. And in Black Magic, Orson Welles plays Count Coliostro. And he does a wonderful job playing Count Coliostro. This is back in the, you know, right before the French Revolution. It's a black and white film, but it's very, very well produced and very, very well-mounted. And and he the, the black he does he does his magic with hypnosis. This is the whole uh, Kaliostra's power is hypnosis. He learns it from Anton Mesmer. And then the two in the end they have this duel, this hypnotic duel in the courtroom. And and uh, this is where I think probably I got the idea in my head that magic is really hypnosis. You know, this is it, and and it's uh, so I, I and it's a very good film and I and I I strongly re- recommend it. Uh, some more recent films though that that um, more recent films that we um, that we need to, to, to mention, and one of them, of course, is um, Marion Cooper's Marion Cooper's version of She of Ryder Haggard She. Now, Ryder Haggard, let me point something out about Ryder Haggard She. It was came out back in 1897, I think. And the first version of She, the novel, she was the immortal woman. You know, Aisha, she must be obeyed. And she lived in the secret uh, ancient Egyptian surviving, ancient Egyptian kingdom of Kor, lost in the Libyan desert. And she lived for thousands of years waiting for her for her lover to return in his in, in another incarnation, and she kept herself alive. Well, they hadn't discovered radium at that point, so um, so in the original she she was using uh, some sort of chemical transformation. But then, after radium was discovered in 1904, uh, well, about the turn of the century actually, and then by 1904, Haggard. Uh, Ryder Haggard did another version of of She called the Return of She, the second version, and that time he he put the radiation in. Now, when uh, Rose uh, uh, Shiozak, who was uh, the screenwriter for for uh, Cooper's version of She, 1935, he did that after King Kong, by the way. Uh, Rose Rose. Took Return of She and the Radium idea, 
and she used that, which of course is uh, at that time was was the big thing with alchemy at that time, and and so in the in the film version, which is a wonderful film by the way, recently Ray Harryhausen has done a color version, and this film should have been shot in color in the first place. This film uh, had a tremendous influence on Shaver, I'm sure. Uh, this this film should have been shot in color. Ray Harryhausen did a beautiful job of colorizing it. So if you're going to get the film, for heaven's sake, get the colorized version. Uh, and and in this, the alchemy in in uh, in the film version of of she is based upon the second she book, and it's it goes right along with uh, with with the study of alchemy at that time. So this is one to see very definitely. Uh, now, then we wind up to, to uh, one of my uh, one of my particular favorites, and and, and uh, that's Simon King of the Witches, and that's 1971, very low budget film, uh, low budget, and uh, um, the uh, uh, the plot of Simon King of the Witches is. And she sees this this Hollywood this Hollywood witch who lives in a storm drain. Now he's not a witch; he's, he's a magician. But he lives in a storm drain, and and he rises to occult power, and finally does some terrible things. But uh, but uh, uh, Simon uses the guy, the guy this 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 Tiffany who wrote the screenplay. Claimed that he was an occultist himself, and he, he certainly did his homework because he's read enough Crowley and enough Barden to put together uh, some some very uh, interesting magical scenes and sex magic and charging a an effluvial condenser, if you will. Uh, and Simon King of the Witches is is one to look at because it is it it shows magic pretty much. Yeah, pretty much the way we do it, and and uh, and it, it, it is kind of an insider's thing. Now, uh, according to urban legend, I'm supposed to have been the I was supposed to have been the model for for Simon King for Simon myself, but I'm not sure about that because I never lived in a storm drain and I didn't I didn't you know kill anybody and and uh, at least nobody I know about and I, I you know so I I don't know, but I did. But I did ride around on a motorcycle with with smoked and smoked cigars and carried a bottle of wine in a paper sack. So I suppose maybe that, <laughs> I might have been. I don't know. Uh, but uh, the other one I think we'll mention too, uh, while we're in line with magical films here, is Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain. Now, Alejandro Jodorowsky is a fascinating character. Uh, and an occultist, a tarot master, by the way. Yes, book out now on tarot. Uh, he's uh, in his 90s. He's hale and hearty over in France teaching uh, teaching tarot and whatever. Uh, but he was an underground filmmaker back in the 70s. He did a, a, a thing called El Topo, which became sort of the father of the midnight movies. The Holy Mountain, however, is his more magical, mystical film, hermetic film. And uh, it's very unique. Uh, and what it 
deals with is uh, is a, a young a young man who goes through kind of a Christ-like figure, and he goes uh, through a whole bunch of symbolic initiations, and then finally, uh, finally, he and this group of symbolic people, each of which represent a planet, and each of which have a particular important career, they all give up all of their worldly possessions and seek to climb the holy mountain. And they go on this quest to climb to find the holy mountain and climb it. Now, uh, quite frankly, I didn't, uh, I hadn't seen this film, uh, you know, until we were two thirds of the way through Beyond Lemuria before I, I ever even saw this film. But, but uh, there is some similarity. I mean, you can compare the two films. Uh, Jodorowsky had a different approach, a different approach to the Holy Mountain than we did. But yeah, the films are similar. Uh, now, but Jodorowsky's some of the symbolism and the visuals, and and the Hermetic symbolism very evocative, and uh, his tarot symbolism is very interesting, and the the idea of of the quest of these people that represent the different planets up the mountain is yeah, is something that you really ought to. That you really ought to uh, look at. By the way, uh, somebody wants to call in. We have a few minutes left. If you want to call in, uh, the call in number is three four seven eight five seven one eight three zero. So if you want to get a quick one, a quick one in, you can go ahead and call us in. Uh, and next week, uh, next week we'll try to have some more call ins. Uh, uh, and then I'll mention a couple of mo- more modern films. I think I will mention uh, just quickly in passing. Dark City. Now that is a very magical film, and uh, about the power of the human imagination and the idea that you are the center of the universe. Dark City. That's one you might want to look at. And this most recent one, Inception. Inception is remarkable. I mean. I couldn't believe that Hollywood would actually make a major film like Inception. It's about controlling your dreams and going into other people's dreams. You know, Michael Murcock wrote a uh, couple of books on the dream thief. Well, that's what these—that's uh, what goes on in Inception, is the invasion of other people's dreams. And this is one that's uh, very thought-provoking, and you might want to take a look at. Now, uh, next week... We're going to have another fascinating topic, which is somewhat similar to what we've been discussing tonight. Oh, by the way, before we wrap this up, uh, Kenneth Grant, by the way, is very, very much influenced by by, uh, magical fiction. Lovecraft and Sax Romer. Sax Romer, uh, the Fu Manchu, the guy who wrote Fu Manchu, had quite an influence on Kenneth Grant. So um, you'll... uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think that, and Crowley, of course, loved Lilith, and and uh, these these uh, these books that we've been discussing tonight, uh, these these books have had an influence on 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 a number of magicians, and they do they are very definitely worth reading. Now, next week we're going to deal with the Enoch syndrome. This is going to be controversial. It's going to be very interesting. 
we will we will talk about uh, and explore these revelations that have popped up every so often. These tremendously complex and and marvelously worked out revelations. Uh, and we'll do um, we'll do the Book of Mormon. Of course, we'll briefly discuss that. And uh, of course, the Book of Enoch is the first one. The Book of Enoch, the Book of uh, the Book of Mormon. We'll discuss D and Kelly a little bit, uh, and the Owaspi Bible that came out back in the eighteen hundred late eighteen hundreds, and then uh, uh, the the one one of the ones we used for um, for Dweller on Two uh, for uh, Beyond the Mirror that's Dweller on Two Planets, the story of Philos, uh, the Arantia book you've heard of that one, and of course the Shaver mystery and. Then we're going to deal with the psychological end of this, the jet-propelled couch by the psychiatrist Lodner, which details a psychiatric uh, review of a person who is affected, a professional atomic scientist who is affected by the Enoch syndrome and becomes a galactic emperor every night. And that became the inspiration for a recent film called K-Pax. So we're going to deal with a fascinating subject of the Enoch syndrome and the visions that, uh, that result from this particular, uh, this particular phenomenon. And it really is. It's had a lot of influence on, on people and on the world, and it is a remarkable phenomenon, and we're going to get into it in some depth next week. And also, we'll take some call-ins next week. Now, um, just to kind of recap what we were talking about tonight, these these uh, uh, these fictional uh, books and, and films are not the usual, not the usual Hollywood version of films. One thing I I, I mentioned, I think that Jack Vance was the writer of a series of fantasies called Dying Earth that were influenced by Clark Ash and Smith. And, and Dying Earth are beautiful fantasies, but that's where Dungeons and Dragons comes from. And the fellow that invented Dungeons and Dragons admitted that before he died. That that so if you want to if you want to read stories that that are magical the way the Dungeons and Dragons people want it to be, which is kind of Hollywoodish. then read Jack Vance's The Dying Earth. They're beautiful stories, too, by the way. Uh, and But then you compare those to the kind of magic in these other stories, and you'll see there is a difference. Uh, and it looks like we're just about out of time, so I hope I've stimulated you a bit and given you some, some uh, titles to look for on Amazon and on uh, Barnes and Noble, and maybe even uh, Alibris, and and get you to get you to reading some of the oldies and the goodies, and we'll see you next week. And meanwhile, good magic.